promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. Don't regret this, Lord. I'm a wonderful person. Gospel according to John, the third chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. And let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. In the Scandinavian world, there is this term called Yanteloven, the laws of Yanta. It was basically kind of, sort of, but not really invented by author Axel Sandemos, a Danish author back in the 30s, basically the Danish version of Garrison Keillor. Everything he wrote was basically satire, comedy. But you know the problem with satire, right? It basically is truth thrown in our faces in a humorous way that we might be able to maybe laugh at ourselves sometimes, but maybe be able to understand the world that we live in a little bit more. But these laws that he wrote down, because he he wrote this this novel that was loosely loosely based on the little town he grew up in in Denmark uh, called Yanta. And, And these laws were these social attitudes that people had a a disapproval of of, um, expressions of individuality and and, and personal success. And so so they read like this, sort of like a Ten Commandments. There's ten of them. 
You're not to think you are anything special. You're not to think you are as good as we are. You're not to think you are smarter than we are. You're not to convince yourself that you are better than we are. You're not to think you know more than we do. You're not to think you are more important than we are. You're not to think you are good at anything. You're not to laugh at us. You're not to think anyone cares about you. You're not to think you can teach us anything. This list of what is presumed to be humility, right? And the funny thing is, is that we can joke about it, but you go to the Scandinavian world and and people actually take it as, well, yeah, we're supposed to be humble. We're supposed to be, and I even see it here in Minnesota. For instance, you come to a four-way stop. No one gives the proper right-of-way. Everyone's just waving to each other. Oh, yeah, go. Oh, yeah, go. And then 10 minutes later, you're still waiting, right? Or in Minnesota, we don't take the last cookie. It, it, It just sits there forever, condemned to become dry and stale because no one will take the last cookie. They don't want to be that guy. This, this sense of, of, of a humble attitude and yet being open to every now and then humble brag about the fish we caught or, or whatever the case may be. But here you have Axel writing this satire, this commentary about life in which he was growing up in, and yet it's used still today in places like Sweden and elsewhere to say, well, yeah, we don't make a big deal about ourselves. And even here in Minnesota, which is one of the more Scandinavian places in the world outside of Norway, uh, we tend to do the same thing. And it, and it works in part because Denmark and Sweden and Norway, and also here in Minnesota, we definitely have a biblical heritage, Right? We have this biblical heritage, this teaching that we've grown up with, with humility being the center of our lives. And we have texts that go along with it, like James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Or 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Then you have Jesus in Matthew 23, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will will be exalted. So it's important to be humble, right? To, to, not, be, to not toot your own horn, right? Or, or we have Jesus also telling us in that more familiar passage in Luke, pick up your cross daily and deny yourself. Follow me? Well, what does this have to do with things like today being Holy Trinity Sunday, with, with the readings that we have, specifically the verse that I chose, Isaiah 6.1? in the year that King Uzziah died? Well, we have to ask the question first, who is Uzziah and why does Isaiah put this in there? Well, Uzziah was a king of Judah. And he became king when he was 16 years old. When you go home, you can look up uh, 2 Chronicles 26, and it, and it depicts him there. Uh, also in, in 2 Kings, but he goes by his other name, Azariah. And he reigned for 52 years, one of the longest reigning kings of Judah. And it talks about how he did uh, some amazing things. Most importantly, in verse 5 of chapter 26, it says that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He set himself to seek God. He, he, He was instructed in the fear of God. As long as he sought God, he prospered. It says. That's basically word for word what they have here. And then it goes through his whole resume. It talks about how he, he fought wars and he won victories and he became famous because of it. 
It talks about how he was a builder, an architect, where he built towers in Jerusalem and towers all around Judah as places of defense and places of safety. That he had a large army that he provided for. That he was an inventor, that he invented uh, machinery for defense and for war and and for other, other things. But then verse 15 hits us with this one phrase. He was marvelously helped until he became strong. He was marvelously helped until he became strong. And then verse 16 in 2 Chronicles 26, when he had become strong, Uzziah grew proud to his destruction, for he was false to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to make offering on the altar of incense. The Christian Standard Bible says he acted unfaithfully. Basically, he, he fell into the same sin that King Saul had in 1 Samuel 13, where he presumed himself to be a priest, where he was so terrified of how things were going that God was not there with him, and so he decided to take things into his own hands. Uzziah does the same thing, and he enters into the place that the priests were only allowed to go, into the second most holy portion of the temple. And he made his way in there to to place the incense on the altar in the form of the prayers. And this was supposed to be just for one priest each day allowed to do. Well, 800 priests storm in there, follow him in there, and they tell him, you have done wrong. And then they say this wonderful line, it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Uzziah was one who his whole life was about honor, right? Winning victories, becoming famous, building monuments to himself, to his greatness. And now he decides he's going to try and usurp what it is that is not his place. He will receive no honor from the Lord. And so the Lord strikes him with leprosy right then and there in the temple. And the priests freak out and they tear their clothes and he's sent off. And he ends up being excluded from royal life. He's not allowed to live in the palace He has to live in a house outside of the palace. His son Jotham becomes sort of proxy king in his place. And then when he dies, he's not buried with the kings because he's a leper. He loses all of that. And so where our verse begins with with Isaiah 6.1, it's actually the end of Uzziah. It's, it's this humbling of him in the year that King Uzziah died. And there's, there's a divergent understanding of what that means. It could actually mean his death, his actual death. He stopped living. But secondly, also, there is this understanding of leprosy, that if you got leprosy, you were basically the walking dead. So in the year that he was cursed, As well as if you take those two things, either his actual death or the year that he was cursed with leprosy, there's this humbling that comes, this death of Uzziah, death of his self, death of his ambitions, death of his works, where he's placed in a position to be able to say, I'm mortal, I am not God, but you are God, O Lord. Well, in the year that King Uzziah died, what did Isaiah see, or who? I saw... The Lord. Uzziah tried to usurp all other authority. He stormed into the temple and now he's dead or he's segregated out or he's been humbled. However, we read the text, 
He's basically reminded that he is dust. And who does Isaiah see? The Lord. That God is not missing when this great king, this one that everyone would have looked at and said, oh, he's awesome, he's great, he's powerful. Well, now he's not. He's lost his place, and yet God is still there. God is still present. And not only is God present, but it says, seated on a throne high and lofty, an exalted throne, a raised up throne. If you've ever been to a palace in Europe, anybody been there? doesn't matter which country. You go into the throne room, and where's the throne? Is it lower or higher than everybody else? There's usually steps leading up to it, right? You know why they do that? To make it so that monarch can be seated in a resting position and still be higher than everyone else in the room. So that everyone else that's standing in their presence, they don't have to kneel, and yet that monarch is seated higher than everybody else, exalted. Well, here, Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted on a throne above every other throne, higher than the throne that Uzziah thought he had, higher than than the throne of David, higher than every other throne we could possibly create for ourselves. There, God is king above all kings. And then it says the hem of, of his robe filled the temple. We're not talking the full robe. We're just talking the bottom portion. Like you can see his feet. That was about it. And then the hem. And it filled the temple. The edge, the end. Not not even the full robe. And it filled the temple. Now this could be Solomon's temple. Isaiah 37 actually tells us that God is enthroned over the cherubim. And if you remember anything about your Bible history, you remember the Ark of the Covenant And they built the two cherubim facing each other on the top. It was called the mercy seat. And they they said that God was enthroned above that, which is a whole sermon in and of itself. God's throne being the mercy seat. God's throne being a place of mercy. But the the assumption could be that 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 is what Isaiah is seeing. But the problem is, is that Isaiah was not a priest. He was just a prophet. He'd have no position to be able to go into the temple. Well, the word that we translate temple can also mean palace. And if Isaiah is a prophet of the day, he probably had the ear of the king. And so he could be in the palace. And there he is in the palace that Solomon built, that Solomon actually built before he built the temple. And it was supposed to be this grand, gorgeous place. And it says as he's in that palace, as the king is either dead or cursed or or humiliated, whatever word you want to say, he's saying, I see the Lord in the throne room and his entire robe fills the space. That any king that would try and sit on that throne is overshadowed by this king that we worship, this Lord. That he's standing in the palace after the curse of death upon Uzziah, and yet he sees the Lord. He sees God on his throne, exalted above the throne of Judah, filling the palace, filling all things as God does. And so this text from Isaiah comes to us, and, and, and... it's a beautiful picture, but it usually gets, gets set aside for some other things. We tend to like our, our incarnational theology. We like Jesus in the golden diapers in the manger, right? We like the Jesus that we can pet and, and tell what to do and those sorts of things. And yet Isaiah 6 comes to us and gives us a completely different picture of God, an exalted picture, a glorious picture, where, where this text should remind us that we are mortals, that no matter how hard we try, there's always a bigger fish. 
no matter how many athletic records we break, someone is going to come along and break them, right? No matter how well we do in school, someone else is going to do better. I was letting Mike know my daughter's graduating from high school today at 2 o'clock. She's salutatorian, big deal, 3.98 grade point average. She's still angry about that one B she got. Well, there are two girls that are co-valedictorian, and she sees herself as something less because they're getting more prestige than her because they're valedictorian. And my mother had to go, okay, shut up, is what she said to my daughter last night at dinner. You have a fantastic grade point average. You're getting into a great school. You're going to do great. And after tomorrow, no one is going to care, is what my mom told her. How much of that is the norm for us? How much of that is we hold on to these great accomplishments, and yet at some point, they just don't matter anymore. They're nothing. But then even more importantly, this text should come to us and remind us that God is not mortal. That we can lose power and God reigns. We can lose our king, the politician that we love, whatever. Yet God is still in control. God is still in charge. We can be proud. We can be humbled. And God remains our God. And that is this wonder, this awesome mystery of God, this, this glorious God that we lose if we just focus on the, the incarnation, if we just focus on God with flesh on as, as Jesus. We, we lose this picture of God exalted that brought Isaiah to say, woe is me. Because if we lose that, then how often are we going to become Uzziah? Or we're going to have no problem trying to mold God the way that we want him to be. And that's actually why the Trinity uh, matters It's an idea, this Trinity understanding, it's an idea that's so elusive to us that it's beyond our understanding because we'll sit here and say, well, it's God, three and one, one and three, three persons, one God. No, we don't have three gods. We have one God, but it's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's all you have to do. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. And we try to wrap our minds around it because it just doesn't compute. And yet it's above us. It's exalted. It's beyond us. And the reality is, is where we get lost is the fact that the Trinity is not so much an idea to wrap our minds around. That's, that's why we, we, we lose this. It's actually the action of God upon us. That's what we see here happening in Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne. Words are spoken of this Lord. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. We sing it, right? We'll be singing it in just a little bit when we have communion. And yet that word, sacred, set apart, holy, special, perfect, glorious, is sung of this God. And and those words get heard. Those words happen upon Isaiah, which is often what the, the Hebrew word means. And he says, woe is me. There's this humbling word that comes to him. It breaks Isaiah, unlike what happened with Uzziah, it breaks Isaiah, and then God does God upon him. God sends a coal to him. They take a coal from the altar, and it touches his lips, and there's a cleansing, a forgiveness of sin. And that is actually the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father speaking. The Word is Christ coming to you, and the Holy Spirit is opening your ears to hear it, that God, in all his glorious uh, 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 transcendence comes to us in the form of mercy 
to be God for us. The, the Trinity is about giving you a God. God being handed over to you, making himself known to you in that way to humble you so that he may then exalt you on the last day. Uzziah exalted himself. Isaiah gets destroyed and God comes to him and picks him back up. And so today as it's Holy Trinity Sunday, we'll be reciting the Athanasian Creed in just a little bit. And it begins with this troubling phrase of those who want to be saved must confess this. It's not a confession of an idea. It's not a confession of a word. It's a, this is the way that it happens. The Trinity coming to us, Jesus being applied to us in the word that redeems us, to purge us of our pride, to humble our hearts, to hear his words regularly coming to us. And that's my prayer for you today as you go from here, being reminded that it is through this Trinity that we receive atonement for our sins, that we are birthed anew, as our John 3 text told us this morning, that we get handed the faith that we get to trust in this Christ above all things, that we get to trust in this God that is so glorious, so above us, and yet he comes to us to offer himself to us that we might be his and he might be ours, which is all we have as our hope in this life. And we give thanks to him. Thanks be to God. Amen.